Amen. Man, if you love Jesus, say amen. amen. That's good. You know, I, I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart. And uh, if I could do one thing, uh, I would take each one of you to heaven with me. But I can't do that. You have to do it for yourself. But all I can do is tell you the truth. And really, that's what I want to do this morning is tell you the truth. And, you know, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would just fall upon this place. That this would be a place where people all around come to worship the Lord Jesus. And, and, and that he would be preeminent in everything that we do. That it would be all about him. You know, this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. And if you have your Bible and would open it up to Luke chapter 7, I'm going to read just a few verses here, um, 31 through 35. And, um, you know, there's a difference between childlikeness and childishness. Childlikeness and childishness. There's a difference between those two. Childlikeness is a prerequisite for discipleship, according to Jesus. He said in Luke 18, verse 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And so there's an element where we need to be childlike in our faith. But he's not talking about being childish, okay, in that. The childishness was characteristic of the religious leaders in Jesus' day who opposed him. And um, they received very harsh treatment in our parable this morning. I want to read this out of Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 31. And Jesus says this, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children... Who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and they say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Let's pray. Loving Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for these words of Jesus. And I pray, Father, that you would, um, your Holy Spirit would be our guide and our teacher this morning. And Father, as we, as we look into your word, Father, that you would show us um, uh, our hearts. Father, that they would be laid bare before you, Holy Spirit. And that you would discern the truth of where we are and where we ought to be. Father, I pray that a great repentance would fall upon your people. And that each one of us, Father, would recognize our desperate need for Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, this, I, I want to focus in on this passage, but I want to give you, uh, before we get into this passage, just a little bit of the background that, that's going on prior to this in this chapter. I mean, if we look at this chapter and we read the whole chapter, um, we, we see that, that John, uh, he's got a problem with Jesus. <laughs> 
Um, what I mean by that, this is John the Baptist. And he's sitting in prison. And he has a problem with, with what's going on. Um, there's several factors here that, that, that hinder our grasp, though, of the, the gravity, the, the, the seriousness of this situation. I mean, we're inclined to, to think that because John the Baptist was a prophet, that um, he must have always been very pious, you know, very holy. Um, but he was a man just like any other man. And, and uh, we realize that most of the heroes of the Bible are, are ordinary, flawed people with the same sinful tendencies and temptations as the rest of us. And sometimes they have unbecoming behavior, um, just like us. And, and um, you know, we tend to think of John the Baptist only in terms of, of positive things because of his past devotion. I mean, he was the one who said, this is the Messiah. This is the Lamb of God. And so we, we, we hold him up. Uh, he is the one that said, he must increase and I must decrease. And so we think very fondly of John the Baptist. Um, you know, we, we tend to think about positively about him because of, of the good things that our Lord said about him. He said that there was no, no one uh, born among women that is, that is greater in the kingdom than John the Baptist. He said, but the least of these, the, the, the servant of all, is greater than he. And so when you think about that, we, we, we revere John the Baptist because of who he is and what he has done. He's the, the forerunner to the Messiah. And he even died a death of a hero so that we wouldn't want to speak in any way to tarnish his reputation. But we need to understand something, that John the Baptist was a great man, but he was not a perfect man. Sometimes we have that in our mind that John the Baptist was, he's right up there next to Jesus. He's the forerunner of, but, but Jesus lived a perfect life. John the Baptist doesn't say that about him. What we find in this passage, in this, not in this passage, but in this chapter, is that John the Baptist is at his worst place, if you will, the worst moment of his life, according to the biblical record. He's in prison. He's going he's gonna to die soon. And he's wondering, and, 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 and consider exactly what is taking place when John sends his two disciples to ask Jesus a very serious question. And the question is this, are you the one who is coming, or do we look for someone else? Are you the Messiah, or do we look for another Messiah? Think about that. You see what was going on. John's question was the result of his discontent with the things that Jesus was doing and what he was saying. If you read in this chapter, you know, you, you recognize that, that, that it says uh, in, in verse 16 uh, through 18, it says, Fear gripped them all and they began glorifying God because a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. This report concerning Jesus, him, went all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. Verse 18, the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. So what you have is you have Jesus who is, who is healing people. The two miracles that are, that are previously recorded in this chapter are the healing of the centurion's servant. 
where Jesus spoke the word and the man was healed. Then you have Jesus going into the city of Nain and there's a funeral procession coming by and he goes and he touches the coffin and the man in the coffin sits up and begins talking with his mother. You have him healing people and raising the dead. And everybody was gripped with fear. They were amazed And news spread throughout all of Judea about what Jesus was doing. And and John is sitting in prison. And he summons uh, some of his disciples and he says, Go ask him if he is the Messiah. Is he the one who is coming? Or do we need to look for someone else? See, this question which John sent through his disciples, it, it reflected his displeasure. Because John is questioning Christ, the Messiah. What I mean by that is he's saying, are you the Christ? Are you the one? I mean, John doesn't openly question God. He doesn't question himself or even his ministry. He doesn't question the fact that the Messiah will come. He recognizes that is prophecy. He's questioning, is Jesus the Messiah. Are you him or are you not? And really that's his direction there. See, John bore more witness. Uh, John the Baptist, when he said in John chapter 1 verse 32, he said, it says, John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in the water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. His own testimony, John the Baptist's own testimony, testified that he saw the Spirit come and abide upon Jesus That he is the son of God. And so John's question is not really a question. It's more of a public challenge. Think about this. The question is, are you the one who is coming or do we look for someone else? (laughs) The we, given in context of this account, would seem to not only include John, but also John's disciples And possibly the crowd that was surrounding Jesus. (laughs) I believe was they were present at the time that that, that the question was put to Jesus. And so the the we then is nearly equivalent to Israel. Saying, are you the one? Or should Israel look for another Messiah? (laughs) The response to Jesus to the crowd in in verse 24 says when the messengers of John had left he began to speak to the crowds about John see it suggests that the question was given publicly to Jesus see the biggest difficulty with the question however is the inference of that last statement or do we look for someone else because it seems to me that there is a clear threat there If you're not him, if you don't answer satisfactorily, then we're going to look for someone else who's the Messiah. 
Now, think about this. John is forcing, not following Jesus. Rather than following Jesus as John has done in the past, John is attempting to force Jesus into declaring himself as the Messiah and acting as John had predicted. But you see, that's not what Jesus was about. He wasn't going to declare himself as the Messiah. John was challenging Jesus to do what he had purposed not to do. I mean, John was pressing Jesus for a public announcement. Okay, I am the Messiah and the Messiah has arrived. That's not who Jesus is. He was, John was demanding that Jesus proclaim himself as Messiah. Or John and the others would reject him and turn to another. It is obvious that Jesus didn't intend to bear witness to himself in this fashion. I mean, Jesus did not want people to accept him as the Messiah because he proclaimed to be the Messiah. He wanted them to accept him as the Messiah because the evidence proved that he was the Messiah. Not just because of what he said. There was other people that came saying they were the Messiah. No, prove it by scripture. Prove it by the things that I do. That's why when he answered John, he said, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who takes no offense at me. See, that's the background behind what Jesus teaches here. Notice how Jesus and John the Baptist are set in contrast to the religious leaders of that day. I mean, they've got this consuming zeal. They're fired up about it. They're carrying the kingdom and they're talking to people about all of the things. John is out there preaching his heart out in obedience to God's will, in boldness. Being very practical rather than speculative in his concern for others. And with enthusiasm, he's preaching the gospel. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of of God is at hand. Jesus is saying, repent unless you repent otherwise. Unless you also repent, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. You see, these were the qualities that were exemplified in Jesus and in John. They were very diverse in their message. One was the forerunner. One was inaugurating uh, God's kingdom. But you see, in contrast, the religious leaders of the day, they exhibited qualities. I want to call them negative qualities that Jesus described as being like children in the marketplace. See, but the very people who who knew the scriptures and should be the mature ones in the bunch, who they should have welcomed John's message, they should have welcomed the Messiah whom John pointed to, but they didn't. They rejected God's purpose and refused to humble themselves to be baptized by the radical prophet. Here's the key. Their pride kept them from acknowledging themselves as sinners and from participating in the activity like baptism where sinners admitted their need for cleansing. See, here's what they thought. They thought, you know what? 
we're better than these no goods. We, we keep the law. We, we've done everything properly. We know the scriptures and they don't. John's baptism may be okay for them, but we don't need it. They felt like they didn't need Jesus or John. So they missed God's purpose through John's ministry and they missed God's Messiah whom John announced. See, Jesus uses this parable to expose their root problem. Those who had rejected both John and Jesus, they were like children who were playing in the marketplace. Jesus' use use of children here is his illustration was a rebuke in itself because he was implying that these men who thought of themselves as being so sophisticated, so intellectual, so religious, so spiritual, that they were so too spiritual for John's crude style. But in reality, they were so immature that a child's game refuted them. Think about this. I mean, the picture is one of a group of children who are, who are saying, Hey, let's play wedding. Okay? Let's pretend like we're going to get married. Let's play house. Okay? Let's play. You play a, an upbeat and a happy song and we will dance. And the other group, the first group of the children, they say, No, we're not going to do that. We don't want to dance. And they said, okay, let's pretend that we're at a funeral. And we'll play a a funeral dirge and, and we'll be sad. And they said, no, we don't want to do that either. That's what Jesus compared the Pharisees to. These children in the marketplace that they didn't want this and they didn't want that. So the, you know, in other words, you can't please them. No matter what you want to do because they don't want to play unless they can make up the game and they can make up the rules. Hmm. I think that sounds a whole lot like people today. We don't want to play the game unless we can make up the game, unless we can make the rules. If somebody else is making the rules, we don't want any part of it. You see, when I read this, I look at this and I see these negative qualities that Jesus had in mind that he accused the Pharisees of when he uh, accuses them of childishness. The first one is this, shallowness. (laughs) You know, children have a real trouble, real difficulty discerning the real value of things. I remember when I used to pay our children for some of the work they did. I mean... Work was expected, so I didn't pay them for all of it. But, because everybody needs to contribute to the household, amen? So, what I would do is when I would pay them, sometimes I would, um, you know, didn't have the same coins for each one, so I might give one of them four quarters, and I might give the other one, you know, two quarters and five dimes. But you know there was going to be an argument that ensued, Because one of them only got four coins and the other one got seven coins. They didn't understand the value of the money. Okay? And so a lot of times this childishness, this shallowness, you know, Jesus and John were both a part of unfolding God's plan for redemption. 
John with his call to repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus with his joyous proclamation of the good news. Oh, he proclaimed the good news. You know, but they didn't buy that either. In the shallow, fickle estimate of the times, the value of these two men of God were overlooked. Think about this. Like children in the marketplace, these religious leaders played their games oblivious to the value of the ones who were in their midst. Could we be accused of being shallow and fickle? Or of trying to come to and serve God on our own comfortable terms? See, I'm sure that as they heard John preaching repentance, it convicted them and they didn't want to deal with that. I'm sure when they seen Jesus full of grace and mercy, they didn't want to deal with that because it convicted them of how they had dealt with the same people. It's convicting on both sides. We can be just as fickle. We don't want to hear the message. We don't want to see that. So this shallowness exists. Let me point out another one, the selfishness. You know, if you don't play my way, I'll take my toys and go home. That syndrome is a real part of childhood. We've all seen it. Fickle in temperament. Children often are difficult to please if everything does not go according to their wishes. You know what I'm saying? If it's not the way they want it, they don't want any part of it. You know, I, I love our grandkids. I'm going to move on. You know, when I was a kid, we used to go out on Saturday mornings, me and my older brothers, and we would play, um, you know, tackle football in the sandlot on the corner. And uh, I think maybe that's what's wrong with us today because we would play tackle football with no pads and no helmets, no chin straps, Dick, you know, the... Um, But I think everyone here probably had one of those friends while you were growing up that didn't seem to want to play anything. I mean, you might say something like, hey, you want to go ride bikes? I mean, to a a 10-year-old on a bicycle, I mean, that's an adventure. You know? Nah, that takes too much energy. Well, do you want to play Monopoly or something? No, that takes way too long. No matter what you say, they don't want to play. They don't want to do it. You've had friends, and I have too. Same thing. Never want to do it. And I I don't get that, but I understand, like children, we can be so selfish, especially if we don't get our way. If it's not done the way we think it should be done. You know, the anger, the whining, the tears, the attitude... They're all part of the arsenal at their disposal. And that's the way it was with the religious leaders of that day. John and Jesus, with their consuming zeal, didn't play the tune that the Pharisees wanted to hear. And so they were rejected by the Pharisees. Look at verse 33. 
Jesus said, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread. I mean, the guy ate locusts and wild honey out in the desert, out in the wilderness, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. Someone who has been set apart to God since birth. He's got a Nazarite vow. No, no, uh, uh, won't cut his hair and, 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 and can't eat any, drink any wine, uh, no, no fruit of the vine, and, and, and can't touch any dead animals. And he's out there making his existence in nature. And they say, this man has a demon. He's, he's, he's you know, from the devil. Now, then you have Jesus Contrasting that, verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> Jesus came with his joyful announcement of God's kingdom and free forgiveness to sinners. <laughs> it's kind of like a wedding feast. He's accused of partying with the wrong crowd. And his arrival as the bridegroom means it's time to celebrate. This is what Chuck Swindoll said about this. He puts it this way. The self-righteousness of the Pharisees finds fault in everything that is set before them. We don't want that. We don't want that. And we don't want that. And we don't like that. They can't be happy about the kingdom of God and what God is doing in their midst. I mean, the point of this parable is to expose the foolishness of the bickering over those whose game to play when (laughs) they're playing games in the presence of the supreme crisis of the universe. The fact that God has brought His Son to provide redemption for all of mankind... The supreme crisis of the universe, the inauguration of the kingdom of God, and all they can think of is we don't like the game you're playing. They were so busy maintaining their form of religion that they missed the spirit of this new era. Could we be so selfish that we will miss it when Christ comes to rescue us? And lastly, I want to talk about the short-sightedness. You know, one more quality of childishness is the overwhelming power of the immediate. A child's life is bracketed by the boundaries of the immediate. It has to happen right now. I mean, it's extremely difficult for a child to take a step back and see the big picture. You know, to take a long-term approach to whatever situation they're dealing with. And the Pharisees had the same problem because their concern was for the position and their power that they had at the present time with Jesus who was threatening that. They couldn't see beyond it, so they rejected him. And Jesus said that time would prove the Pharisees wrong. That over time they would see this is God's plan. And this was God's plan. And that they were wrong. It did not seem so then. But the long look would reveal that the kingdom. Which was heralded in 
by John the Baptist, and it was inaugurated by Jesus, had its origins in the will of God. God was at work, and they didn't recognize it because of their childishness. I need to land this plane real quickly here. But the problem wasn't with God's messengers. And it wasn't with God's message. The problem was the proud, unrepentant hearts of the religious leaders. Verse 35 says, Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. It goes back to those who have submitted themselves to God's way. Let me ask you a a very hard question. Is it possible that you know deep down inside of you that you've been religious, that you've been spiritual for a long time, but that you really don't know what people are talking about when they talk about the peace and the contentment that come with being in Jesus' presence? You kind of wonder what you're missing when people talk about what a sweet spirit we had in worship today. You don't quite get it when the preacher talks about having the assurance that you are saved. That you never really have, you know, yeah, you walked down the aisle a long time ago. You came down the aisle, you grabbed the preacher's hand, you might have even been baptized. The preacher told you that you were saved and The church made you a member of its ranks. So who are you to question those? And oh goodness, you've served on committees. You've served the children and you served as a church officer for years. But still, there's a nagging pull about salvation. Your salvation. That could be the Holy Spirit warning you. I mean, John preached that even religious Israel needed to repent and they needed to make a commitment to Jesus. But the religious rejected his message to their own destruction. I say to you this morning, don't be foolish like the Pharisees who refused To acknowledge that their religion might not be right after all these years. Folks, we should care more about our soul than we do about our pride. Let's pray together. Loving Father, I thank you for this time. And Lord Jesus... I thank you for giving your life, for bringing the kingdom of God, for preaching the good news. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that in you we have salvation of our souls. I pray, Father, that in this place and in this time, that your Holy Spirit would convict our hearts. And God, that we would see our need to repent. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would show us
that we've put our faith and our trust in other things other than Jesus. We've put it in our bank accounts. We've put it in our, our homes, our families. We've put it in our children. We've put it in our church. We've put it in a lot of things. But God, I pray that this morning that you would show us the truth that Jesus is all we need. Father, that when will Jesus be all that we need? Father, that your Holy Spirit would convict us, lead us into that truth. Because, Father, he is truly the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, help us to confess him before it's too late. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Guide us as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name. Amen.